Okay, the uh, topic for the morning that I've captioned is adequate and appropriate biblical counsel. Unless you've been living under a rock over the last two years, you're probably well aware that uh, we at Grace Community Church, uh, a number of our pastoral staff, some of our people have been pilloried and taken to task publicly and privately uh, concerning the quality of the counsel that we provide. Um, Some would-be public figures have attempted to build their own reputations uh, at the expense of the church. And we're fully aware of this. We understand this. Uh, I got off of an airplane this April in Kansas on a family vacation. Within 36 hours, I was sitting in the study of a pastor, uh, a TMS grad, hearing how one of the women in his church Uh, who is a graduate um, who had come there from uh, Grace Community Church, was complaining about the quality of the counsel that she had been given. Well, that sparked a question in my own mind that I've been pondering uh, since then. I've bounced this off of uh, John Street uh, a few times. We've talked about it, communicated. And, And that is, what's wrong with the counsel? What is wrong with the counsel that has been provided uh, by with Grace Church? Is there something in the content? Is there something else? Uh, so I started working on that and thinking about that. November 7th, just uh, not quite a month ago, there was another article that came out, and it started off with an attack on one of our staff pastors, and then it broadened to the church, It uh, included Dr. MacArthur, but it didn't stop there. It went on. uh, It brought into its focus ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and not to be outdone, uh, it stopped with Jay Adams, who uh, is probably the founder of the modern biblical counseling movement. Uh, It goes back to the book he wrote uh, and was published in the early 70s, titled Competent to Counsel. And I'll come back to uh, Dr. Adams in just a few minutes. Uh, but it was quite clear that the attack really is not just on one particular individual, not one particular church, but in fact, the attack has been on biblical counseling at large. The lines have been drawn, and the issue ultimately is the sufficiency of biblical counseling. But as I say, I've been working on this for quite some time now, and early on I started thinking that the key issue is really what does God consider to be adequate, appropriate biblical counsel? When all is finally said and done, 2 Corinthians 10.18 For it is not he who commends himself that is approved. And if you look carefully at some of the uh, articles that have been occurred, there's an overtone of self-adulation that takes place quite a bit in them. It is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. 
I'll put it another way, if we are engaging in biblical counseling, if we are communicating to each other what should take place in our lives, you would think that we would look to the Scripture to provide an evaluation criteria, the yardstick by which we can consider whether or not the counsel that is being given is appropriate or not. What does God say about appropriate biblical counseling? And I'll say this again at the conclusion. If you take away one thing this morning, I can't emphasize this strongly enough, let the scriptures and nothing else from within our culture Nothing else, even from within the church at large, in America and in the world. Nothing else is to provide the criteria of evaluation for the counsel we provide than the Scripture. The Scripture is our only criteria of evaluation. And by the way, some of you may uh, be ready to start tuning out here, thinking, well, I don't do any biblical counseling, I'm not a pastor, I'm not... Uh, anybody in leadership. This isn't just talking about those who think they are gifted in the area of biblical counseling who provide that. This is for all of us. Colossians three, sixteen through 18 tells us that we are to encourage one another. We're to admonish one another, provoke one another to good works. Are we doing a good job of it? So it does fit all of us. Now, there's one particular passage And this is by no means the only passage that uh, would be helpful in this topic. In fact, I'll cite a couple of others before I'm through. Uh, One of the lessons I've learned from my fellow elders is that everything is scalable. So you try to be able to use your time to the best and you compress where needed. (laughs) Turn to Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. R.C. Sproul says that We need to find the drama in a passage and communicate the drama. What we have here, Paul believing that this will be the last time that he ever sees any of the elders in the church of Ephesus, calls them together, and he pours his heart out to them. Unfortunately, perhaps, uh, he may have actually seen at least one of them later on uh, when he was being tried in front of Nero, But uh, we cannot say for sure about that. Beginning at verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and he called to them the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you this whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both the Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. 
Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. If you're reading the NKJV or the ESV, you'll see the word, the whole counsel of God, uh, a reading that I actually find personally much preferable. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. You yourselves know that my hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, You must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the words which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Uh, I am particularly indebted to two men, one who I've had the privilege of personally meeting and then one uh, whom I've already referred to, Jay Adams. The person whom I have met is Alexander Strauch. Uh, Alex Strauch has become a good friend of ours here at Grace Church. He has recently written a book on Acts 20, titled, Fierce Wolves Are Coming, Guard the Flock. If you have any, and I mean any, role of leadership within the church, I strongly urge you to get a copy of that book. He does probably as good a job as anyone that I know of in terms of getting into Paul's mind and helping us to understand what he's thinking. As I had been putting together the uh, lesson I started wondering, I started having some questions in my own mind as to was I trying to twist a passage of Scripture into something that it really didn't fit? Does Acts 20 really refer to counseling? So I pulled my 50-year-old copy of Competent to Counsel off the shelf. My college pastor had made sure that uh, we read through it in the summer of 1973 And I started looking back into Alex Strauch's, into Jay Adams, excuse me, uh, his words on this particular subject. And to my great surprise and incredible relief, Adams writes that Acts 20 gives, quote, the fullest biblical account of Paul's private nuthetic, that is counseling, activity. He goes on to note that the passage indicates that Paul, quote, continually confronted people nuthetically and did so 
quote, night and day for three years without ceasing. He actually contends and points out quite convincingly that the major part of Paul's activity in Acts 20 most likely would comport with that which we now call counseling. Uh, Interesting to realize that. And it helps us to understand what is acceptable counseling, what is proper counseling in the sight of God. Perhaps the most striking thing about this passage is that Paul proclaims his complete lack of fault. I am innocent of the blood of all men. And then he goes on to explain why. It should be noted, we need to realize at first, that this is not because of some weak grasp of the standards of the counselor. Paul, and we can often overlook this, was a legal mind without parallel at the time. He was an expert in Israeli Mosaic law. He also demonstrates an incredible competence in the area of what we now call international law. At that time, it was called Roman law. But it was the law of the Roman Empire, the international scene at the time. He is fully aware of at least three standards, and it deserves to note what they are. To some degree, they roughly compare with the biblical functional description of pastors and elders. First of all, He demonstrates the requirement of capability, of competence that was imposed upon shepherds. Thank you, folks. Um, We can take this for granted, but if you were a shepherd at the time and you took someone's sheep out on the hill, you had a responsibility to take excellent care over those sheep. If you returned and you were missing one of those sheep, and you told the owner a predatory animal devoured that sheep, you had a responsibility. Going back to Exodus 22, you had the responsibility of providing a portion of the carcass of that sheep. You'll find this reflected in Amos 3.12, also in 1 Samuel 30, 17, verses 34 to 37, David tells Saul, I took on the lion, I took on the bear. Amos tells us that a shepherd would on occasion reach into the mouth of a lion to pull out a portion of the carcass to vindicate that he had in fact been a faithful shepherd. Paul knew that standard. He also knew the standard of the overseer. Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 33. The overseer of a city had the responsibility of standing alertly on the wall, and when he saw a threat coming, an enemy force, he had the responsibility of shouting out a warning, calling the people who may be outside of the gates of the city to return for the protection against the attack. The text tells us, That if he gives the warning and people ignore him, their blood is on their head. Conversely, if he does not give the warning, their blood is on his head. 
Dick Mayhew uh, in Rediscovering Pastoral Ministry points out that this probably was very much in Paul's mind uh, as he is speaking here. And he, of course, uses the word shepherd. He uses the word overseer. But there's one other standard that uh, came to my mind as I was preparing for this, and that is the standard of the messenger. Quickly, turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. By the way, the word Malachi actually can be understood as being the Lord's messenger or my messenger. But there's a prophetic role here. He's describing the responsibility of the priests who in many cases were delinquent and he compares them with an individual who is the ideal Levi. My covenant with him, ideal Levi, was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. And note verses 6 and 7 Instruction in truth, or true instruction, was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That standard that measurement criteria would have been on his mind as well. The the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Regardless of which combination he actually was thinking of at the time, all three would have been in the back of his mind. Uh, But Paul boldly asserts that he was innocent of the blood of all men. He does so, and we can overlook this, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He also does this in a group of men who knew him well enough to be able to call him if they thought in any way that he was speaking with too much exaggeration, if they thought he was speaking untruly, or there was anything wrong about what he said. There is no indication on the part of any of these men that they thought Paul was in any way out of line in his assertion of innocence. And as I said, he explains why I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose, the whole counsel of God. Now, Paul would never claim any level of complete or sinless perfection in this life. He probably would not have done too well in the church in which I grew up, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Paul was confident, however, that he had completed the crucial requirements of his ministry there in Ephesus. And that being the case, we need to consider the component parts of that ministry that this text shows us. Now, I'm going to give you a roadmap so you know where I'm going, so you don't lose hope and despair if we seem to get bogged down. There are 10 aspects, 10 criteria for adequate, appropriate biblical counseling First of all, the counsel comes from the counsel of God. Secondly, it comes from the entire, the whole counsel of God. Common sense, but we'll develop that as we go. Third, 
Since it comes from the counsel of God, since it comes from the whole counsel of God, it would use biblical procedure. It would not overlook the procedure the Scripture calls us to. Third, it is declarative. We'll develop declarative as to what? It is counsel that is admonishing. You find that word used a couple of times in this particular passage. It is counsel that is testimonial. The legal scholar becomes a witness. The advocate is someone who is proclaiming what he has seen, what he knows experientially. It is emotionally empathetic. Emotionally empathetic. It is characterized by integrity. It is characterized by integrity. It calls for and directs the individuals not to commitment to an individual, but to commitment to the word of God. Finally, finally, and this is extremely important, so to the best that you can, try to hang with me and uh, avoid the impact of too much partying last night for a while. (laughs) It has a proper goal. And you'd be surprised how much of a problem that is in today's church. Our, uh, our brother John Street has weighed in on that particular issue as he and I were thinking through what this should include. First of all, the counsel must be based on and from the counsel of God. Put another way, and it's almost, well, duh, Biblical counsel needs to be based on the scriptures, right? But it's amazing how often and how easy we see the tendency on all parts uh, to lapse into making it on something other than the word of God. Well, it's not a problem if we consider something else. I've seen a guy who advocates that, at least on the surface, then make that statement in a footnote. Yeah, it can be very easy for us to shift away from being based on something other than the counsel of God. We begin with the Word of God. We finish with the Word of God. Scripture tells us, and we see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, It is the scripture that is God-breathed, that is perfect, adequate, equipped for teaching in every good work. We are called to continue in the scripture which is able to make you wise unto salvation. Those of us who've had the blessing of having godly parents will understand what Paul says to Timothy. You've known this from the time that you were an infant continue in it. Interestingly, and we can overlook this, Amos 4.13 tells us that the scripture given to us by a God who reveals himself actually can give us the thoughts of God. God reveals his thinking to us within the scripture. Now, does this mean that we never include any other input No, not at all. If there is a medical issue, 
Some of the counselees that we deal with or face have legal implications resulting from the conduct, the unbiblical, ungodly conduct that they have engaged in. Yeah, we may associate in the input of a capable lawyer, a capable medical physician, but as physicians of the soul, and the Puritans referred to uh, pastors and elders as physicians of the soul, our primary focus after we've dealt with the broken arm that the young man got while violating camp rules, we then call him to consider the condition of his soul. The physician of the soul will communicate what the solution is for the problem that we're dealing with with that individual in the condition of his soul. Okay? Parenthetically, we also need to be careful that we do not go beyond what is written. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, if we go beyond what is written, the inevitable result will be that we begin to indulge in human pride. And some of you have seen this really play out in ministry over the decades. If we indulge in that which is not written and attempt to put it on the same level of authority as the Scripture, we give place to pride. And we head towards very serious potential consequences. It may be, again, the height of redundancy to say that biblical counsel should be biblical in its content and methodology, but it is surprising how frequently we depart from that. So criteria number one, Biblical counsel is based on the Bible. Criteria number two, it is based on the whole counsel of God. Those who find themselves in a position of giving counsel from the Scripture need to be always in prayer that the Holy Spirit would bring the right passage to their minds. There is so much, but the whole counsel of God needs to be the basis of our counsel. Sometimes a phrase that we would tend to overlook in the book of Proverbs or in the Psalms provides an extremely important point of balance to a major teaching that we find elsewhere within the Scriptures. Proverbs 22, verse 3, The prudent see the danger and take precaution, while the naive proceed and pay the penalty. That has to always, and we're realizing this, and Dr. Street has done a tremendous job in pointing this out, that has to always be balancing in the process of dealing with and providing counsel to a couple who are dealing with marital conflict. The whole counsel of God, even portions of Scripture, that sometimes can be somewhat obscure. I mentioned already that the Physician of the soul, the elder, the pastor, needs to be aware of what is going on in the life of the counselee. The physician of a body, a medical doctor, will not necessarily provide the same medicine for all individuals. Now, I had a football coach that would do that. 
There was one particular spray. It was designed to help people uh, catch a ball and hold on to it more quickly. He would use that for anything. You could have a compound fracture, and this coach (laughs) would uh, put some of that on it. That doesn't work. We just even think about it, and we realize. As a result of that, again, the emphasis is on knowing the whole counsel of God, knowing which passage is going to be most effective in dealing with and calling to godliness the counsel that he's interacting with or she is interacting with. Third, it complies with biblical principles of inquiry and dispute resolution. One of the things I'm most grateful to my college pastor about was that he taught us that the Word of God is our method book as well as our message book. Some of you may have heard me use that expression before. Uh, It grows out of 1 Timothy 3.15 where Paul writes, he says, I write these things, these biblical principles, so that you will know how to conduct yourself within the house of God. The Word of God is our method book. It is our message book. What does that say with regards to the process of counseling, particularly if you are involved in the process of counseling an individual? Proverbs 18.13, It is shame and folly to answer a question without knowing the whole story. J. Adams Adams actually talks in terms of the process of counseling. He uses the word failing. He says the counseling relationship may fail if the counselor, quote, comes to conclusions too quickly, end of quote. Proverbs 18.13. Shame and folly to give a decision without first knowing the whole story. If you are dealing with or involved in any way with a counseling situation that involves conflict between two individuals, Proverbs 18.17 should never be far from your mind. The first to plead his case seems just until another comes forward and questions him. There are two sides to every story. 1 Timothy 5.21, elders are called to avoid partiality. Elders are called to always avoid partiality. Do nothing with partiality. Make sure there is not any kind of a bias one way or another in the counsel that we are providing to people. Third, It complies with biblical principles of inquiry and dispute resolution. Four, the council is declarative. The word is anagelo. Declarative as to what? You look at the passage, ultimately it is declarative as to the will of a sovereign God of the universe. There is an authoritative aspect to that declarative part of the council, And we in the American church are so used to being democratic that we can lose sight of the fact. We can lose sight of the fact that in a counseling relationship, one individual is being called upon to communicate, to declare 
the counsel of God. That is not what he thinks the counsel of God should be. He has the responsibility of making sure that it is accurate, but it is the counsel of the sovereign God of the universe. In the words of Malachi, the counselor is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. All too often, those of you who have done substantial amounts of biblical counseling will know that this is the case. People come in without a respect for the authority that is inherent in that position. All too often, people do that within the church uh, and do not respect the authority of the man who is proclaiming the word of the sovereign God of the universe. There is an authoritative aspect Uh, The herald, he is an emissary, he is a representative of a monarch. We don't just blow him off. We don't act in a way that shows a lack of respect. And all too often that takes place. But the counsel that God will approve of communicates that that is the counsel of the sovereign God of the universe. And woe unto us if we do not make that clear in our counseling. Criteria number five, the counsel must be characterized by admonition. Now there is a word there that is used uh, in Acts 20.31, nuthetel. It is the verb form of a word that in the noun form, nuthesis. And basically it talks in terms of being admonished or admonishing someone. There's a balance here. And Paul reflects this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, when I was with you, I had the gentleness of a nursing mother. And there should be that. But woe unto us if we overlook the fact that there needs to be more. There is also a place for the admonition of a father calling us to live in a way, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a nuthetic aspect, and originally uh, the, Amer- the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors was called the National Association of Nuthetic Counsel. Uh, there are times that I would like to see the name change back to that, but that's neither here nor there. We can call it whatever we want as long as we remember the importance of the function. It needs to be nuthetic, realizing the human propensity for self-excuse and for succumbing to the residual impact of the fall. The counselor has to be ready to admonish and exhort as is needed in the individual case. None of us get past, ever reach a point of getting past the need for that in our own lives. The counsel, number six, must be testimonial. Again, as I pointed out earlier, the advocate, the legal scholar, now realizes that he has to shift his function and he has to move to being a witness. A witness as to what? He has to be a witness to the truth that he has experientially lived out an experiential knowledge of the gospel of our triune God and his ways and the outpouring of the text. But more than that, the text goes on to say he is a witness. He is providing testimony 
concerning the gospel of the grace of God, synonymously of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Biblically, faith and repentance are never separated. Any effort to seek lasting change on the part of a counselee prior to regeneration is ultimately doomed to failure. Romans 8, 7, the ungodly are not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can they be. The unregenerate mind cannot meet and comply with the requirements of Scripture. Doing so, in the words of Jeremiah, is to heal the brokenness of my people superficially, to persuade a leopard to change his spots. Put another way, counseling noncompliance with counsel given does not necessarily indicate fault on the part of the counselor. And in fact, it may indicate that the counsel was right, proper, and good. Adams points out that the departure of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18 through 30, after he sought counsel from our Lord Jesus Christ, was ultimately due to the fault in his own life. And without attributing it in particular source, he goes on to say that the failure of the crowds who forsook Christ and no longer walked with him, and that presumably refers to John 6, verses 60 and 66, also was a counselly failure. Ultimately behind that was a lack of regeneration that had taken place in their lives. Again, merely because a counselee goes out of a counseling relationship and does not comply with what he or she has been taught, that is not going to indicate that the counsel was defective. It may speak to what is going on in that individual's life. It may indicate that is a place where we need to pray that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would grant faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moving on, number seven, the testimonial counsel must be emotionally empathetic. Romans, or Ephesians 4.15 tells us that we need to speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. This is not just an abstract clinical relationship. The counselor is not just saying, take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. (laughs) The counselor loves the counselee with the love that can only come from God. As a result of that, now we're not big on the issue of tears. Uh, I think far more common than we realize, men in particular, we may find ourselves crying on the inside but not on the outside. But there will be that emotional empathy. Why? Uh, Alex Strauch points out that it can come about in sorrow as we realize the inevitable consequences of counselees proceeding in the direction that they are choosing to take. They are violating the word of God. We know what's ahead. If I love them, I'm going to grieve for what I know is going to occur. I know there's going to be a train wreck. And you grieve about it. Sometimes you almost are fascinated watching it occur, but it never subsides. The grief never subsides. But at the same time, 
Alex Strzok points out, and he dealt with this in the situation where they were counseling an elder who had gotten caught up in adultery. They had the tears of grief, and then they had the tears of repentance. And some of us know what that is like. When there is repentance, repentance following counseling, following calls to come back to Christ, calls to reconciliation, there is a time of tremendous joy. And sometimes for some of us, that joy will manifest itself in tears. So there is an emotional empathy to that counsel. Moving on. In keeping with Malachi 2.6, it should be noted that the counsel has to be characterized by integrity. Paul says in Acts 20, I coveted no one's gold, clothing, or property. I worked for myself. I supported myself and those with me. Malachi, his ministry, the ministry of the ideal Levi, was not tainted in any way by greed. This is extremely important because a counseling relationship can provide temptation uh, to a certain amount of greed, to a certain amount of power on the part of the counselee, of the counselor. Uh, we need to continually remind ourselves we do not succumb to that. In keeping with that, The counselor does not build the individual to himself or to herself. The counselor, and you see this, this is point number nine, the counselor commits or commends the individual to the word of God. What are we talking about? Instead of building a dependence of the counselee upon himself or herself, the biblical counselor who God finds acceptable commends and commits the individual to the Word of God. We disciple to the Word of God. Why? Because the time available really forces us to do that. Paul, here in Ephesus, had only been there for a period of three years. Well, three years is a long time, but that was all. Eventually, there was a finite end to it, and he knew that. He was discipling to the word of God so that the dependence would not be on him as an individual. And again, this grows out of integrity. The dependence is on the word of God so that the individual would be able when he deals with or she deals with a new crisis in the future, they are able to turn to the word of God and figure out, counsel themselves from the word of God as to what needs to be done. Last and you've borne with me for a while, the counselor has an appropriate end goal. Note, where do we see that in Acts 20? You look at verse 32. Paul emphasizes the inheritance. Let me make sure that I read this so you don't overlook what I'm talking about. Verse 32 I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, among all those who are saints. Literally, that would be what he's saying. 
His focus there is on the inheritance. That word is used 14 times in the New Testament, kleronomia. Most, if not all, are in the context of heaven. Most clearly, 1 Peter 1, 4, our inheritance is reserved for us in heaven. You also see that in Hebrews 9, 15, where it talks in terms of the eternal inheritance. Colossians 3, 24, again, the focus is on heaven. The focus of the biblical counselor is not on this life. The focus of the biblical counselor is on persuading individuals. Colossians 1.28, Paul writes, We proclaim him admonishing, there's that word, nutheteo, again, every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. When is that time of presentation going to take place? Before the beam of seat of Christ. We proclaim him, we admonish one another with a goal towards presenting each other complete in Christ in heaven. Dr. Street wrote, he said, if you get time, communicate that this is ultimately a battle of worldviews. The Me Too movement, and I inserted the word movement, of the world has been adopted by many evangelicals as the church to movement. And our pastoral councils are being judged with this new philosophy and not with Scripture. Now, what am I saying? What am I talking about? There is a tendency to come to our counselors and try to get resolution of earthly problems. Dr. Street and I, a few years back, uh, were dealing with the challenge of suicide for older men. We did a session uh, in Sundays in July on spiritual disciplines of the older men. Just last week, a new article came out. The CDC again made the similar finding that older men are far more likely to engage in suicide. We addressed that, but that is not our primary focus. Our primary goal is to present those older men who are in our church complete in Christ at an eternal perspective. This is the difference between having an eternal focus and a temporary, this world focus. The eternal is God-centered. The this world focus is ultimately man-centered. We are called always to be communicating, counseling on a God-centered, eternal focus. Malachi 2.6, his goal is to turn away people from iniquity. His goal is to persuade and prepare people to be able to be in the presence of Christ. And I pray that that will be the case for all of us in the counsel that we provide. Again, if you take anything away from the session this morning. Let the scriptures be the yardstick by which the counsel we have provided, by which the counsel any of us will provide, the scriptures are to provide the yardstick.
May God bless us. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for the patience of your people. Father, I pray that the word that has been orally communicated, the word that we have seen in written form in front of us, will bear great fruit in each of our lives. Father, I pray that your word would go forth with power through our church at this holiday season. May we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that we do. We love you. We trust you. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you are dismissed.